Welcome to the show, How Did They Get There? I'm your host, Sean Penn. So today we're talking with Janet Grillo. Uh, Janet has a really interesting story. And I think it's interesting to you know get exposed to her lens of filmmaking because it's been shaped by so many influences. And those influences have come largely in the form of experiences like, you know, from rising from story analysts at New Line Cinema when I was basically at its origins to, you know, developing some of the most uh, incredible filmmakers there and finding them. And I guess that's what you would call, you know, the period of discovery. One example of that is the House Party franchise, which she developed. Uh, You know, she found Reggie Hudlin, who's had such an incredible career, you know, both in that franchise and after it, from Boomerang to Marshall to Sydney, I mean, so many great films. And that's one example of several examples that basically killed it at Sundance and went on to become incredibly successful. Hanging with the Homeboys is another example, you know, that won the, that screenwriting award at Sundance and, and it just blew up. And that was Leguizamo's, uh, I guess, leading man, leading man, leading debut. And another example of that is Ted Demi, man. I mean, uh, he was essentially a hip-hop director. I mean, that was how he really started. And his debut was, you know, Who's the Man? Which is kind of, it has that hip-hop flair. I mean, that's such a central theme in the picture. And that was before, you know, he became a classic filmmaker with Beautiful Girls and, you know, the Dennis Leary things. And then also um, with Blow, right? The list goes on. I mean, Frank Whaley's another one. Uh, with Joe the King, uh, which is a film that I love. So she worked on that. She was an EP, I think. And that also won that screenwriting award and blew up. And that's basically how his directing career started. I think the last picture that I saw him you know, direct was that Like Sunday, Like Rain movie. And at the same festival, Sundance, and I've been to Sundance. Uh, I, had a, I had a mixed experience there because I was sick but uh, I grew up in Utah, so you have to go to Sundance at least once. And when I was leaving to go to Duke right before that, uh, I think the January or February before, I I went there and I uh, that's where I met Matt Ross and Nate Parker and um, a bunch of cool people. But anyway, that's at that same festival, that's where she and David O. Russell met. And that's where their relationship started, you know, both. Um, I guess romantically, but then also in terms of uh, all the projects they made together, like Spanking the Monkey, uh, which is, (laughs) that's like in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of film, because especially independent film, uh, incredible film, man, Jeremy Davies, what what a performance, right? I think there's a scene where he's in the car. It's actually, uh, it's dissimilar, but it's not from her film Fly Away with Beth Broderick. Basically, it involves a car, and there's this suicidal ideation element. Jeremy's goes a little bit further um, in a negative way, but it's interesting to see that. Uh, what a weird set of emotions you feel during that film, and feelings too. I think empathy is one, and a strange curiosity of what those characters must be you know, going through at that time, and what is the father thinking about? So we were talking about that, uh, how he wrote it during jury duty, and then came her really impactful work with the autism community. Um, I mean, in terms of film, The Miracle Project is a documentary that she produced, 
And she was also the EP on Autism the Musical, which came to Tribeca. And HBO picked it up, and that won the Emmy for a nonfiction feature. Uh, just incredible work. And then also in terms of her directorial, you know, ventures, she clearly is someone that, you know, while she was developing all these incredible projects with, you know, these fascinating filmmakers, I mean, she had the bug to write and direct original work. And she's done that, you know, with Fly Away, which stars Ashley Rickards and uh, Beth Broderick. And also with Jack of the Red Hearts, that's Anna-Sophia Robb and... Famke Jansen and Taylor Richardson you know I mean in those in those films she's and we talked about this she's really empowering uh, an entire community and I think that's pretty beautiful her latest film is The Warm Season and that takes place in New Mexico really interesting identity I mean I think if it comes down to one thing that's how I would describe it you have a little girl who's in New Mexico and she is wandering around in an area and she comes across this man who's actually an alien in a man's body, right? He's transmorphed himself to kind of fit in the vicinity of the community that he's now, I guess, becoming part of. But then there's an issue, his planet is in danger and he needs to, and they need to work together in order to restore his own sense of identity. Meanwhile, the woman grows up and she has to deal with her own uh, family and her own issues, right? So it's like you think you hear alien and you think, oh, it's sci-fi. But I think what it really is, and again, we talked about this too, is this portrait of identity and relationships and how the two kind of inform each other. And I think that film, um, it explores that, that topic really well. A lot of really interesting dialogue too that helps kind of support some of those emotional and, um, you know, ethical questions. Man, it's great watching it. We also talked a lot about, like, living in New York and how her experiences at New Line, you know, where she rose up, I mean, how, how did they inform how she sees film now and the landscape of film, particularly independent film, and how that fits in with this, you know, post-pandemic smoky fog that's burrowed its way into her atmosphere. When will the smoky fog go away? Anyway, I'm digressing. This was fun. I really enjoyed talking with her. Hope you enjoy it too. And happy Independence Day. How's uh, near Woodstock? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how's uh, that's cool. So wait, how is it? Do you is your um, area kind of like covered in this foggy, smoky thing? Thankfully not. Okay. Yeah, not to gloat, but yeah. no, we, we we've escaped that. However, you know, what was it, a month ago or so? It was yeah. apocalyptic up here. So you know, we yeah. suffered. We suffered, but uh, you know, happily not. How are you doing down there in the city? I hear it's the worst in the country i'm okay i'm by the hudson and i was trying to look out my window but i can't see it unfortunately because of the fog but when i first saw it 
And wow. I know like wow. I know these things I know these things aren't good, but when I first saw it a few weeks ago, it almost looked like it was uh it was lit like a like the city was lit like a Soderbergh movie or something. <laughs> cuz it was like cuz he uses that tinted filter and sometimes it's kind of yellowy. And wow. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And everyone was taking <laughs> pictures, but it did feel kind of apocalyptic. Yeah. Right. Wait, so wait, so you're in Woodstock. Yeah, so well, I'm actually I'm outside actually of it. Yeah, I'm in Saugerties, which is the village right next door. And it's, you know, much cooler than Woodstock. <laughs> how yeah, no, that was gonna be my next question. Wait, so how is it how long have you been up there? Um, I've had a house up here for over eight years. Mm. And um, fortunately, because of my academic calendar i'm able to spend the whole summer here and we get a six-week intercession during winter so i come and i come on weekends and i'm here a lot you know it really is sort of a 50 50 situation um during the academic year i live in manhattan and i come up as i can but otherwise i'm here and it's a wonderful community um there's a huge uh, filmmaking presence mm. Um, Upstate Films, which is a nonprofit film center, is here and also in Rhinebeck, and it's it's fantastic. It's a community-oriented, good old-fashioned film center where they yeah. have events and screenings and uh, talks and you know Q and As, and they integrate into the community and do things with the kids. And it's it's just it's just great. And there's a lot of documentary filmmakers who live in Woodstock. Curiously, <laughs> like a huh. lot of them. Yeah, is that yeah. because of the like the eponymous film that changed music forever or is it because of something else yeah uh because you know because of the the big pink you mean yeah big pink is here yeah um i don't know you know well woodstock itself was the first arts community in america 150 huh. years ago yeah and so yeah so this has been a bohemian center for you know almost 200 years and it's drawn artists writers musicians and now filmmakers for a very long time. And Woodstock has become very expensive mm. and also, you know, kind of a tourist center. I don't want to speak badly of Woodstock, but it's, you know, it's, it's a designation now. Right. So there's a lot oh. of, there's a lot of Indian print head shops, right. And um, tie dyed t-shirt shops. And whereas Saugerties is under the radar. So mm. it's a, and it's an antique village. It's a perfectly preserved Victorian downtown. Okay. So it's very charming. And we have, a beautiful, huge independent bookstore. We have several art galleries. There's coffee mm. shops, Valor, some good restaurants. I mean, it's just a really wonderful creative uh, community, but we also have a hardware store and, you know, <laughs> so it's like a real place where real people live, you know? Have you, uh, have you, have you been to the hardware store? Oh yeah. Tons of times. Okay. I have a, I have an account there. <laughs> okay. All right. Got a house account. You gotta have that. Got oh, a house account for my house. <laughs> did, did you grow up in the East coast? I did. Yeah. In uh in New York, in the city yeah. or somewhere else? Tri-state area. Mm. Um I grew up in New Jersey, but don't hold that against me. No, I lived in New Jersey. <laughs> really? When I, was, when I was a kid. In yeah. uh South and West Orange, I lived. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure, sure. Where sure, did you, where did what about you? I'm sure you've heard of Paramus. Yeah. 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 Well, I was cozily nestled between Paramus and Hackensack. Paramus, the Paramus Park Mall, right? Exactly. That was okay. So here's a sad true story. Mm. 
So the, the northern Bergen County where I grew up, which is basically a suburb, a commuter commuter burg for people who yeah. went back and forth on the bus to New York City, as yeah. did my father. And it's, you know, it was all built after 1950s and it's just one big housing development. And, you know, when I was around 15, 16 years old, I realized, oh, okay, I get it. This is about shopping centers. And then the mm. houses are where people can put all the crap that they buy at the shopping center. Oh, yeah. As opposed to a community that has a shopping center. Right. And so- our family went to the opening of Paramus Park Mall because mm. that's what you did, right? Yeah. And we go in and you see this family and they're standing there looking like wide-eyed and confused and bewildered. They've got a picnic basket and huh. they came to go to a park in Paramus. Oh, no. And I know and I thought it was so heartbreaking. So I was like, oh, it's so sad. So then our family, you know, we wandered around and went to, you know, whatever, uh, the gap and oh, uh, yeah. came back out. And the family had sat down at the central fountain in the bar park oh, that's and so their picnic. And they just decided, okay, we're here. And they had a picnic in the middle of the Paramus Park Mall. They stuck with their original confusion and it led to a good <laughs> moment. And they probably remember that moment forever. So that well, I do. <laughs> when was the I haven't been to a mall in so long. I feel like it's a maybe it's just a West Coast thing or something. Like I feel like this the experience of going to a store. And like trying things on, I I honestly can't remember the last time I did that. I mean, what about? I mean, you go to the hardware store, but you go to the mall. I avoid them like the plague. I hate them. Yeah. Um, this is the beauty of Manhattan or Brooklyn, wherever you live in New York, is that we don't have to have malls because we have an mm-hmm. actual city. We have yeah. an actual town with right. actual shops and stores, and 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 it's not just about commerce. Is that the American shopping mall has replaced the town center? We mm-hmm. don't have authentic town centers. We don't have authentic yeah. plazas and villages, but we do in Socrates. We have a mm-hmm. village in Socrates. And there, you know, I, I should say there's in Kingston, which is right next door, there's a strip of box stores. And I certainly go there for the things that I need to get at a box store. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, the soullessness of corporate America. You drive across the country and you could be anywhere at any time. Everywhere yeah. you go, you see strip malls with CVS and Starbucks and Bright Aid, and then whatever version of the supermarket it's, you know, Harris Teeter or Shoprite yeah. or whatever it is, and it's it's just replicated, replicated, and that's why we have all these deserts of you know food deserts uh, mm-hmm. in the farmland, and it's yeah. it's very sad. It's it's tragic what's happened, especially since the '80s and corporatism and Ronald Reagan ruined everything. And now the Supreme Court is making the world so excellent again. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the so kind then, of everything that the Warren Court did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait, so then where did you, so you grew up in the tri-state area. Right, in so, Jersey. so I, I grew up, I left New Jersey when I was 16, and I actually, you really want to hear all this? So I, That's I, why you're here. Yeah, so I'm here. Okay, you're going to get it. The Joe Grillo story. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, very you know, bored and alienated in uh, suburban New Jersey. And so instead of finishing high school, I did my first year of college as my last year of high school at the New School for Social Research in Greenwich Mm. Village. And so when I was 16, I moved to Greenwich Village. And uh, it was a wild year. Uh And, you know, I sort of like woke up. And, um, but I had always, you know, fantasized about being a beatnik. So, you know, I had the black turtlenecks. I had the black turtlenecks. I was ready. Beatnik. So, are you? Were you into like, um, like all those poets, like, uh, like Jack Kerouac and Burroughs and all those guys? And at the time, um, oh God, I'm forgetting his name right now. Mm. 
oh, I'm having a senior moment, but it's, no, it's it, he, his son is now the mayor of Newark, Amiri okay. Baraka, Amiri Baraka. Mm. He was a really important political black poet. I was really into mm. him and he yeah. actually came and spoke to us uh, wow. at the new school. And I mean, it was a cool experience. It was very, yeah, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a way to grow up fast. I, now here's the thing that's interesting. Hmm. I fell in with and became very good friends with a bunch of students who were freshmen and juniors at NYU Film School. Okay. My first serious boyfriend was a, was a junior. Oh, no, he's a sophomore. I'm sorry, sophomore at NYU hmm. Film School. And so I knew all of those guys and I hung out with them. And um, and then here I am, you know, decades later teaching there. And a couple of my friends, actually one of my very closest friends, who's hmm. a faculty member, was a member of that class. <laughs> wow. How about that? Did, did you... Go ahead. Yeah. And a couple of the faculty member who were there still at NYU. <laughs> and you guys, and they remember you, obviously. And you remember that. And do you have like, uh, do you reminisce about that stuff with them? Like over coffee or whatever? Like, hey, like this was, uh, this was the time when our minds kind of got blown and we were so yeah. into this. Endeavor, you know, right? I, I think that was good for sort of one lunch and then you get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like, how often can you do that? But what yeah. planted, were you into film and like cinema before that? Like, did something plant the seed when you were growing up? Or was it that like leaving at 16 to go to Greenwich Village, I think? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a long list. And in fact, Todd Graff mm. uh, and I went to that camp together. I was anti-mame to his little Patrick. And oh, then wow. years later, he made a movie about it that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival when my ex-husband was one of the judges. So how's that? Yeah. For that is, yeah, that's pretty full. That's pretty full, pretty full circle. Full circle. I like I that, yeah. And, so, um, and and David Edelstein, the wonderful mm -hmm. film critic, uh, was in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with me. Oh. And again, I was Martha at age 14, and it was a wow. definitive interpretation of the role, I must say. When you say so, when you say that, what do you elaborate on? I'm that? being completely sarcastic. It's crazy. Okay. The Fourteen year olds doing who's that's like a kind of a dark a dark one, but uh, it's kind it's of like, like doing the parody. Crucible. It's like yeah. it would be like um like a Chris guest parody. Oh, age or set a summer camp, and they're doing like the House of Bernardo Alba, and it's <laughs> okay. like you know all this suburban nice suburban. So it was kid, almost like a you know? a kitschiness, or a, I mean, did you improvise that? Like guests would do, or no? You, was it? Were you close to the material? We were doing it for real. Okay. We were dead serious. It, but I'm just serious. saying that Christopher Guest were to make a parody yeah. of a theater summer camp, he would have 14 year olds doing "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf." Yeah. So anyway, but but fast forward, I went after my year at NYU. Mm. No, sorry, my year at New School, where I was hanging mm. with the NYU kids. I went to Wesleyan in Connecticut. Yeah. And I. I went in there and I was a theater major there and I was really not particularly interested in film. I was all about acting, writing, directing. I wanted to be, I wanted to create an ensemble, be part of an ensemble. I had the mm -hmm. whole kind of romance about it. And I went directly from there to NYU for grad school in the dramatic writing program. Hmm. And, um, and that program teaches uh, playwriting, telewriting and screenwriting. It's all forms of the dramatic storytelling, dramatic. And so I went there really completely committed to theater. Yeah. 
But of course, because it's NYU, there was a lot to do with film. And it kind of like opened my eyes. And I thought, huh, this is interesting. And so I started to become equally interested in both. While I was there as a grad student, I had an opportunity. Somebody told me, you can make money by reading scripts and mouthing off your opinions about them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, are you kidding? That sounds good. (laughs) They'll pay me for having opinions? Like, no problem. (laughs) Show me the door, line me up. And it's like opinions have never been a problem for me. And so (laughs) (laughs) so, um, off I went and I started to read, you know, books and screenplays around town. And one Mm -hmm. of the many places where I was reading was this tiny, crazy little outfit where they uh, were distributors and they were distributing high art and low art. They're distributing like mm. fancy French movies and then all the John Waters movies and then all oh, the wow. like, movies like the Tomato That Ate Detroit movies. And wow. I started to read scripts for them. And it was like, it was it was just a wacky place. There were a lot of very eccentric people there. And so it was kind of free fall. And, and it was easy for me to be incorporated as just this kind of kid from NYU. Yeah. And I started to read scripts and nobody had any system. Hmm. So I set up the first actual system where they were logging in scripts and tracking them and doing for like there was no organization. Yeah. Anyway, that place was in the process of producing the second film that they had ever actually produced that they were going to distribute. And people were kind of getting wind that it was good film. And so there was a lot more scripts that were being submitted. And they asked if I wanted to come on as the in-house story reader. And so while I was at grad school, I was three days a week going to this crazy place, getting paid under the counter, right? Yeah. reading scripts and organizing script department and going to NYU doing my degree. And then they released that film and it was Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, wow. And the company was New Line Cinema. Yes. And I, it was just by dint of extraordinary luck. I was in an amazing place at an amazing time. And I stayed there for 10 years and rose through the ranks from in-house story reader to senior VP of production. East Coast. Yeah, yeah I, f- I forget that New Line, they did start off and they were almost like a horror film. That's know? right. The first few were horror films before they got in, kind of drifted towards like, um, I guess, more independent films and comedic films. That's kind of interesting. How did you feel about that that kind of genre? I mean, I guess or like putting in some organization in this, I guess, the industry of the business, like that's something that's critical, but I think it's often overlooked. And so how did, how did you feel about like the stuff that they were putting out and then also just your role there? I can, it was an exhilarating time. Yeah. There, there was, you know, horror is not my thing. There were other people who were sort of focusing on that. And I was, I was looking to the other stuff, frankly. I mean, I became like the classy girl (laughs) to look for the more character driven genres, et cetera. But so there was one day I show up and there's this um, NYU student intern that's been assigned to me and he's like incredibly shy and, but brilliant and knows all about comic books and horror films. He's an aficionado. And that was Mike DeLuca. Oh yeah. So we kind of like grew up together. <laughs> he was like my baby brother. Right. And yeah. as the company grew, he was really the genre guy doing that. And then Sarah Risher, who's the president of production at the time, um, she and I became very bonded and, DeLuca and Bob Shea, who's the president and founder, became very bonded. And it was sort of like the girls versus the boys, right? I mean, it got along. I'm not saying it was, but but I, you know, we were really looking at the more character-driven stuff. And I brought a film in that um, I thought was extraordinary. I saw, uh, I was showed by one of the, you know, many 
we had all these kids, you know, it was a crazy yeah. time. There were so many interesting kids who were around and script reading. And so, for example, there was this other really bright NYU student who was our, our film inspector because it was just one big loft mm-hmm. near the Port Authority. And in the back of the loft were all the, the you know, canisters of films. Oh, yeah. So he'd come after school and look at the films and make sure nothing was wrong mm-hmm. with them. And I started talking to him. I thought he was incredibly smart. And so I asked if he would help read the scripts. He became the first script reader. That's Ted Hope. Oh, wow. And then, you know, everybody was just sort of thumping around in New York trying to figure out what this new off Hollywood scene was. It wasn't even called indie film yet. This is before Sundance had its first year. It was still the USA Film Festival. And um, and there was this very, you know, bright kid who came from California. And again, you know, he had he had wide-ranging taste and was, you know, hyper articulate and just really fun and brilliant. And he wanted to produce movies. And I knew that Ted wanted to produce movies. And I thought, mm-hmm. So I went, brought him out to lunch together and said, you guys should talk to each other. You should produce together. And that was James Seamus. Wow. So James and Ted then formed Good Machine, Good machine, Good machine. of course. That's of what course. it is. But they, you know, the rest is history. But that's an example. There are so many people who are coming through um, New York during that time. And, you know, it was, it was an enthralling time. And of course, the genre films were creating the opportunity to fund all of the rest of the films. So it was a very symbiotic well-oiled machine where we would have, you know, franchise tentpole films. And then the advent of video created an entire new revenue stream that the industry had never had before. And suddenly it's like crazy money. It's mad money Mm -hmm. that, you know, as they, they used to joke, you could sell your dentist home videos if you put a sexy babe with a gun on it, you know? So there was crazy money and that money became the opportunity for the why not, mm-hmm. why not for a million dollars, you know, help somebody to make a first film. Yeah. And so one of those people I, I saw, you know, of my staff of these like bright, interesting people who were, you know, circling around yeah. New York during these years, showed me a short film by um, a kid who had just finished Harvard. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. It was about a bunch of, of you know, guys in St. Louis, middle-class black kids in St. Louis, during the course of one night having a party. Mm-hmm. It was house party. And yeah. I thought, okay, this is this is contemporary John Hughes. This is a black John Hughes. This is an authentic autoral voice. Now my training at NYU was all about autorism. So mm-hmm. I knew an auteur when I saw one, right? So that was Reggie, right? Yeah. Warren, yeah. Warrington and Reggie Hudlin. Warrington was a producer, Reggie Hudlin. And so I brought that project in and and uh that became our next franchise. And then I ran the house party franchise for the rest of my time there overseeing the uh, the sequels. And um, and that money created an opportunity. Oh, hi, I'm, hi, I'm, I'm on a Zoom call. Sorry. Just brought something off. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, Brenda. Sorry. We have a beautiful neighborhood here. It's like, <laughs> like as you can see, like neighbors and friends come in and out of the kitchen. It's yeah. really, it's a no, tight, it's, it's lovely great. community. Yeah. It's wonderful. Very different from New York, Manhattan, yeah. I should say. Uh-huh. Anyway, so what was I? So, so like the money. All these films, like making, giving someone a million for their vision and like making that film and breaking those things up, like the House Party franchise and all the other stuff. Right. So that, wait, so it seems like you did like a lot of, uh, you were like in a lot of like hip hop films, like, or yeah, just involved in that, so like yeah. that uh, pump up the volume 
I mean, that yeah. was one home hanging out with the hanging with the homeboys. That was like John yeah. Leguizamo's one of his first films. It was like, his first. It was his first lead role. Wow. So then, how was that? It's like, did you feel like, um, like you were part of a movement? Yes, and I was. A genre, not just in the million dollar film like indie explosion, but then also like in that in that genre. Like, were you conscious of that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very deliberately. So I'll tell you the story of House Party. Mm-hmm. So by this time. Uh, uh, New Line had moved out to LA and had started an LA office and DeLuca went out there with Bob and mm-hmm. I stayed behind. Right. Yeah. And so I became in charge of the New York office, the creative business of the New York office, finding projects, right. films and filmmakers. And they were out there. Now, of course, when you're in LA, you go from your house to your car, to your office, to your screening room, to your car, to your house. So there's no mm-hmm. pedestrian life. There's no sense of what's yeah. going on culturally. Right. And um, it's like Johannesburg with palm trees. And so here we were in New York, riding the subways, Uh walking the streets, understanding that there was this thing that was a thing called hip hop. We understood that there was this thrum of a new cultural moment that was emerging. Mm -hmm. And so I remember when I sent the script, because... Reggie and Warrington and I, we worked, and my and my staff at the time, we worked together to develop. They had a, a treatment for it, and they had a, didn't really have a script. And I said, look, mm-hmm. I can't get you a million dollars based on your short film and a script, but if you work, and, and a treatment rather, but if I will give you our time and effort, and we can develop the draft together, right. then we'll bring it in as a pitch. So we did that for a couple of weeks, and they did you know brilliant work, of course. Reggie's extraordinarily talented. Yeah. And- when I sent, this is back in the day when there's printed out copies and FedEx, when I sent the printed good out. Good old days. Yeah. The good old days, right? Yeah. And what you'd do is on a Friday, you'd send material for everybody to read over the weekend to discuss on Monday. And so on mm-hmm. Friday, I put together a packet. Now, it had just happened that Time Magazine had just published a story about hip hop. Mm. Like, it's a thing, right? It's a cultural yeah. moment. So we Xeroxed the article in, in Newsweek Time, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Put it with a script and said, pay attention to this. Yeah. This is happening. And we came into the weekend, you know, the weekend read meeting on Monday, and um, Bob Shea loved it. And uh, we were off to the races. So I was keenly aware that we were participating in a cultural moment. And also, you know, I come from, you know, very politically progressive background. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was also very much about. Now that wasn't. I'm not saying that Newline was doing this. I'm saying that I was doing this. Yeah. I was very committed to trying to put the means of production into the hands of the disenfranchised. Right. right. So super interested in being part of diversified voices and giving opportunity for different kinds of storytellers to tell their stories. I yeah. knew that quite deliberately. It wasn't blind. Right. And of course, as Warrington always used to say in Hollywood, it's not black or white; it's green. So if you mm. make money, it'll happen. It's like that's yeah. right. And so. You know, so it was it was an exciting time yeah. to be part of something. I'll tell you something else that's kind okay. of interesting in the karma of all of this. Yeah. So it was my job to find you know interesting films and filmmakers and support and encourage them. And I and one of them I ended up falling in love with and marrying, mm-hmm. and um, David Russell, David O. Yeah. Russell, right? And uh, so we produced together. We produced his first film, Spanking the Monkey, yes. and we made it for we shot it for forty five thousand dollars. Maybe wow. it was actually 40, I think it was $40,000 was, and then 
to get it in the can. And we were shooting House Party 3 at the time. So I got the short mm. ends from House Party 3. Wow. And we shot on the short ends for House Party 3. So that we were able to cool. shoot 35 millimeter. Yeah. yeah. But there was a symbiosis. Like everybody was, we were all in it. And that's like kind of like how hip hop, it definitely pushed the culture in, I guess, a lot of different directions. Some of them are green, but some of them are also really gray. I mean, in terms of like its social, social political awareness that it launched and Run DMC and all of that. But then, if you look at um, like the art house that New Line became, and a lot of it is because of you, and then all those films with um, David, but I just think about the spanking the monkey. Like that's, man, what a in, like intense premise. Like to to make that. I mean, that's that's like yeah. another level, man. Like and especially <laughs> with uh, you know Jeremy Davies, who I really love, and you know as an actor, I think he's incredible. And then just, I mean, a, a med student you know, goes home to take care of his injured mother and then all this stuff happens. Um, how did that, how did that come about? Or when you were part of that, like, did you, could you sense that, all right, there might be some resistance, like it's kind of an ask to to ask people. I mean, that film did really well, but like, it's, it's an ask to get yeah. people to like right. come to that type of premise. Right. Yeah. So I'll tell you. So, um, I met David at the first year that Sundance was Sundance. Right. So it had been USA Film Festival, and then it turned into Sundance Film Festival. And I mm -hmm. convinced Bob and Sarah at New Line that I should go. And they're like, what is this boondoggle? I'm like, no, this is, this is I should go. This is mm -hmm. going to be something. So I went, and um, David was there with a, a short film that he made. And we met and clicked, you know, instantly. <laughs> it was a real yeah. strong sense of like, oh, my God, who is this person? And um, anyway, fast forward. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was extremely talented mm -hmm. and he was, you know, thumping around with various scripts. And the first script that I looked at was James Seamus was attached as a producer. And it was a kind of a political satire about an apocalyptic. It was, a, it was like a satirical horror film about um, apocalyptic uh, okay. climate change, really. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, it was super political. And, um, and it just like, we couldn't, move the dial yeah. on that. And then he had jury duty and mm. he sat there and in 10 days he wrote this. Wow. And I read it and I thought, well, this is the best, one of the best things I've ever read. And so I felt, well, I'm, you know, we decided we were going to work together to make it. And I thought, I just have to cover my butt. I can't be involved with producing a film that I haven't brought to new line. Mm. So again, off we go to Weekend Read, and I ship it out to everybody. We come in on Monday. And Bob Shea, of all people, said, this is fantastic. Wow. This is exactly how a person should emerge making a first film. It will make a mark. It will make your a career. Mm -hmm. I'll pr Let's produce it. Wow. So they optioned it. And for a year, and this was Bob's pet project, and for a year, they tried to get an actress, a female actor, back then they were called actresses, yeah. of enough career clout to sign on for the lead role of the mother. So mm -hmm. to justify the million dollar budget. Right. And it couldn't, Faye Dunaway came really close. Wow. But objectively, and we're talking about, was it like, we're talking about the, the early 90s, like, right? Yeah, 90, 93, 94, right? Yeah. Right. And so what, and when when the careers for women were very time limited, right? Mm -hmm. It's really improved and changed. But by the oh, time, yeah. you know, 30, 35, your career is over. So what 
female actor who in their 40s still had enough of a career that they could merit a million dollar budget was going to risk it on a first time film for yeah. a first time filmmaker in a film about incest. And the fact that we got so far with Faye Dunaway is miraculous. And so mm-hmm. after a year of trying to make it happen, it didn't. And then, you know, my feeling was by this point in time, Dave and I were married and I was like, every time we go to the movies, he would sort of royal with, oh, I could have done it better. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll be damned if I'm married to that guy, right? He's got to have his shot because I can't live with this guy. So we decided that we were going to just pull all the resources we had, including a, a NISCA grant that he had been given for a different movie that we just put into this movie without telling them wow. and raise money from friends and family, blah, blah, blah. I, I had had some savings from bonuses I had gotten from House Party. We put it all okay. in. And um, and we just made it independently. And then it went to Sundance and got awards and the rest is history. And then and then fine, during this time, Fine Line became uh, a part of New Line. Mm. New Line, Ira Deutschman, who had worked for a different company, Cinecom, was brought on to run a a specialty house division. So the kinds of films that Sarah and I were bringing in really got diverted to Ira and Mm. Fine Line. Fine Line was now going to do those kinds of films. So there was actually sort of at this point less for me to do. Okay. Fine Line was doing it. And, um, And also all this sort of genre films, et cetera, really coming out of LA. So there was less and less that was really going to happen for me in New York. I had been working there for 10 years, wow. I was really sort of tired. Yeah. Um, we made spanking, uh, fine line acquired it. By this time I had my first, my, our only child. I was actually pregnant when we shot spanking. Wow. And I, I just wanted to be home with my kid mm-hmm. and sort of take a break from everything and be a mom, you know, I was, and uh, when we were getting ready to go to Sundance, I said to David, you're going to have 15 minutes when people are going to pay attention to you. Mm -hmm. If you have, if you're lucky enough that this has any level of traction, you've got to show up at Sundance with a script. Yeah. So while he was editing and finishing and doing all the finishing, he quickly wrote a film flirting with disaster. Oh, yeah. And so when spanking was, you know, out in the world and all of that, um, there was kind of like a crazy situation. But ended up, uh, Harvey at Miramax ended up getting it, scooping it from New Line and mm-hmm. making it there. And and I left New Line. It was time for me to go. I needed to be with my baby. And David was given a tremendous amount of money. We were living in a rent stabilized apartment on the Upper West Side. Neither of us, you know, had seen more than $50,000 between us. And he was nice. offered, you know, for us a tremendous amount of money. Yeah. And, um, and so I left and then the rest is history. I mean, David, his career skyrocketed. And uh, within a year, our child was diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. And so it had been my intention to sort of be a full-time mom for the first two years and then sort of get back into working. And that's not what happened. I was privileged. And I mean this absolutely grateful and privileged that I could stay home with my son and be devoted, dedicated to his intervention program. And, um, and every day, I mean, I never took it for granted every day. I was so grateful that I 
that I was lucky enough to be able to do this, that all of the families we were meeting where they didn't have the resources, they couldn't be fully attuned, attended. Uh, it, it's a full-time job, you know? So um, I didn't do anything film-related for 12 years. I took care of my son and helped him to emerge to have the best possible life. Mm -hmm. And um, flash forward, we were ended up in LA during those years. Um, LA was the epicenter of treatment for autism. I got very involved with the autism community there in UCLA. And there was a, a miracle stuff. project, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I ended up... Um, putting together a project, the, a documentary, um, The Miracle Project that won two yeah. Emmys on HBO. I was part of a wonderful team there that, um, so the mirror, I, I knew Elaine Hall Katz, who was the creator of The Miracle Project. She was like a fellow mom, you know, and I knew her and I knew about her project. And we were looking for a context in which to tell the story of families contending with living with and loving you know, complex children. Yeah. And our director, uh, Trisha Reagan, very talented, said, you know, it'd be great if there was like a contest or something or a time limited situation so that we know that we're moving towards a goal. It's got a built in plot. Yeah. And I went, the miracle project, mm -hmm. because that's uh, a project that Elaine had created for autistic children to create their own musical and perform it. And so we, unlike many documentaries, we had a clear, arc we had a yeah. clear scope of time um you know we filmed it for i think it was like six months and then we had a film and um my dear friend from college sasha alpert who worked at the murray which invented reality tv yeah. um was a trained as a documentary filmmaker and she'd been working there for you know a decade in charge of casting and was very close with um the people who ran Buna Murray. Like uh, Jonathan John Murray and Mary, yeah, Mary Ellis, right? Yeah. 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 And Jonathan Murray's a wonderful man. And he had always said to her, you know, I will one day, we're going to make real true docs. Just hang in there, hang in there. And so I said, Sasha, you know, we needed some money for the film. I said, Sasha, let's like call Jonathan's bluff. <laughs> mm, <laughs> yeah. means or not. So we went in and I like pitched my heart out. And, um, and he was the father of a three-year-old. And so he was really moved by the story and gave us the money. And wow. uh, and Sasha came on as a producer and oversaw it and and then premiered Tribeca and HBO acquired it and um, and then also in short order I at this point I was divorced and my son was at uh, a therapeutic residential boarding school and I was in a kind of existential free fall of like who mm -hmm. am I what have I where have I gone for the last decade you know I've been totally absorbed into taking care of the needs of others. And, um, did something, did something prompt that? Well, the divorce, you know, yeah. that I, my, the infrastructure of my life dissolved. Oh, yeah. Son was at a boarding school. He had been the focus of my life to take care of him. He needed to be at a therapeutic boarding school. I was divorced. It was like, who am I? What's my yeah. life? What's going on? And it was as though if you take a beach ball and you're in water and you push it down, the minute you mm -hmm. let it go, it rises up. Right. And my creativity as a storyteller, which is what I had always been and had diverted it into supporting the work of other filmmakers, in particular right. David, came back. And in I very quickly wrote and directed two short films, one of which then led to my first feature that I wrote and directed um, called Fly Away, yeah. which is yeah. the very personal story of raising a child 
um, with autism. That's and, a great film. I love oh, that film. You. And I, th- I think it does. And I've seen, you know, um, I think uh, between that one and then also Jack of the Red Hearts, which I also saw, I mean, both of those films, but especially the fly away. Like, I mean, I think that's Ashley, right? Ashley yes. Rickers, it's like, um, it's, this is a, you know, Beth Broderick. I mean, she plays a mother that is basically juggling all these things at once. And the number one priority for her is to, you know, is to be there for her daughter. And she definitely really is, but it's also about kind of other resources that are kind of jumping out at her that she's not necessarily thinking about as much because she wants, she feels like she needs to do everything um, all at once for her. Um, you know, and, and so I think that's what's cool about that. I thought is that just the ability to like take help from others and like see what else is out there, which is like something that, I mean, this is like the most selfless person in the world. Like she's not even, um, you know, making time for this romance because of this, because she doesn't want to feel like she's a burden. And I think that's, what's really cool about like just the resources that are available that, you know, she ended up taking advantage of like that uh, basically changed her whole story. Right. In a way. Right. I mean, she was sort of brought to these, I mean, it's a very personal story. Yeah. Um, It, it, it was my story, you know, of wow. kind of uh, getting to the point where I realized that my son needed to go to a boarding school. It was, it was a crisis to come to that decision. And, um, and I, I, it was, <laughs> I'm going to say this. Mm. I felt like I was either going to make that film or die that I needed to recover and restore my own personhood. And it was drama therapy for me. I needed to tell my narrative in order to recover myself and move through the narrative. And before I wrote it, I asked my son, I said, you know, I'm thinking about telling a story about, you know, a mother of a teenager who has autism and she makes a decision to send him to boarding school. Is that going to be okay with you? And he said, sure, as long as I can be in it. (laughs) So he actually plays a very small role of the guy at the ice cream shop. And, but I felt that, you know, I had every right to tell my story, but I had no right to tell his story. So I thought, well, if I make this a daughter, not a son, and if I make the autism much more involved and a much more of, of a neurologically complex yeah. in, impairment than my son, then I'm not telling his story. And um, and then we made it. And so, you know, when, when I was doing you know interviews or press about it at the time, I used to say, this is every... the a parent-child love story is the only one in which the happy ending is the couple splits up. Oh, wow. And this is a story about letting go. When love means letting go. That was the tagline we came up with. When love means yeah. letting go. And that's what the mother has. She's looking down the gun barrel of the existential gun barrel of that's what. That's like the when she's approaching the tree, right? In the car. Exactly right. Swerves. Yeah, exactly right. But she's looking down, you know, the gun barrel of like, what is going to sustain her child's adult future and her own, right? How are they going to not just thrive, but survive? And she's brought to her knees, which is how she comes to make this decision. It's not something she comes to easily. But so we were very lucky to be invited to South by Southwest in Premier and Dramatic Competition. And I say with great pride was nominated for best film. And mm-hmm. 
um, you know, had an extremely limited release, but it got great reviews that I'm very, very proud of in all the major papers and trades. And, and then nothing happened because it was this tiny little movie about autism. And well, I mean, let me just say that I think the for me, I mean, I think the biggest purpose in my opinion of film is to empower others. Mm. And mm. I think that definitely does that. Like, I think, um, parents that have experienced the same situation or similar situations with their own children uh, can look at that as um, almost a guide or just like seeing someone else's experience makes you feel less alone. Exactly. And I think if it does exactly. that, then that's pretty yeah. fucking awesome. Well, I, you know, I feel I'm, I'm very, very close to the film. I'm very proud of it. And, and I did feel strongly about I was speaking on behalf of a community of parents that yeah. didn't have the skill set to make a movie because I had made a short film beforehand that had sort of a similar theme to it and um and I showed it at film festivals and invariably the people who came to see it were parents of kids on the spectrum and invariably mm -hmm. they would all say are you going to make a feature going to make a feature and I started to realize they're saying please make a feature yeah and so I felt like, of course, first and foremost, I needed to make it for the reasons I just described. But I also felt like, you know, on behalf of a mm -hmm. community of people, we are less alone if we tell our stories to each other. And um, so, yes, the film has had a lot of impact when we we did a lot of screenings for the community. We did a lot of screenings at um, various organizations and it's been, you know, like with Jack of the Red Hearts, always a very emotional and bonding experience to, um, I mean, that's what the power of dramatic storytelling is to represent and be recognized and to, to share what it means to be human, yeah. really. Yeah. And I like to think that both Jack of the Red Hearts and Fly Away are not stories for autistic families no. with autism. They're yeah. stories for families mm -hmm. and the given circumstances are autism, right? Yeah. That, you know, when I was directing both Ashley Ricards and um, the extraordinarily talented Taylor Richardson, who played, yeah. uh, you know, glory, uh, right? Glory yeah. is that I said, okay, let's take the autism out. Let's go through the script and beat it out just as a, you know, as a teenager who's had a power struggle with her mother as a, you know, a girl who's trying to like, get out from under her overbearing mother and, you know, fly oh, away. I'm sorry. Yeah. In, in Jack Let's just look at it. And then the given circumstances of a character are this neurological uh, circumstance, which is right. autism. So then this is how you express yourself given this neurological, um, well, criteria, yeah. right? This is how all of these thoughts and feelings and needs and interactions get expressed is through this. Mm -hmm. And in that way, we're playing a person who with autism, as opposed to an autistic character. You know, we're okay. playing symptoms. I never, ever, ever directed either of them to like flap their hands or any of that bullshit. You know, they yeah. came to and found their way into their understanding and manifestation of what being inside of this kind of nervous system would cause them to do to compensate with all the sensory. Oh yeah. You know, what I would say to them is like, I suffer from migraines. It's not mm -hmm. great, but, um, and by the way, there's a real correlation between mothers with migraines and children on the spectrum. Really interesting factoid. But anyway, so wow. I, have, I have bad migraines and I think, well, okay, 
if I were to play a character with autism, I would use migraines as my baseline. Okay. And how do I, you know, every sound is like too loud and I feel jangled and irritable and overwhelmed. And, you know, it's like, if that's my baseline and then I have to go through the world, how would I react? How would I defend myself? How would I compensate? How would I right. distract myself from this, this onslaught of, and then both of these female actors found their way into their own manifestation from that. I mean, that, that scene where, um, where she's with Anna's, Anna's a few Rob and they're in the, uh, like the, um, children's services and all, I mean, she's just faced with an aquarium and you mm. think that she's gonna, you know, it's going to be some sort of reprieve mm. and it ends up being this excessive stimulatory event that just kind of throws her off course and it, it totally kind of jangles her. I mean, that's, that's wild. Like taking something that's so that anyone else would think is like beautiful or they wouldn't acknowledge it. But for her, it was like sensory overload. Yeah. I mean, right. that was another thing that you conveyed. So yeah. when you, when you kind of worked with, you know, made these films and you worked with these casts and you had all these, um, you know, emotions coming out, I mean, how was that, how was that experience? I guess like, um, cause that was in 2015, right? The Jack, the Jack yeah. movie. So then how did that, how did that kind of, did that change your, um, perception of, filmmaking and like what it could do and what the purpose is in terms of what you wanted to do next? Um, yes and no. I mean, so much of, as an independent filmmaker, you're, you're subject to the, the vagaries of the changes in the marketplace. And right around mm -hmm. this time, as we now are well aware with all of these strikes, that's when everything started to collapse and curdle mm -hmm. that that's when streaming started to emerge as the dominant distribution right. model. And it basically devoured the independent world. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't need to go into the whole thing. I think a lot of people know how hard it's been, how impossible it's been for smaller movies without stars that are, you know, character driven or, you know, about right. difficult situations are very, very, very hard to find their way if they're not carefully platformed and not audiences and cultivated and, you know, the good old fashioned distribution that of independent films that you know, we all came up with in the 90s and into the early aughts, went away. And in mm -hmm. fact, they went away around 2011, 2012, just when we were releasing Flyaway. So mm -hmm. the sort of the profit and loss statement, the business plan had counted on certain kinds of distribution revenue streams that disappeared yeah. when we were actually trying to find them. So I was keenly aware that things were shifting. And what's Fantastically important to think about with the film industry is that with streaming, the advent of streaming, it's one of the only times where the consumer base increases and the revenue stream decreases. Mm. The only other industry where that happened was music. Oh, yeah. But music, they could do concerts and merch. You could tour and stuff, yeah. Right. You don't have that option with film. Yeah. So every film, suddenly there's, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20,000, you know, times people are watching these right. films, but they're, they're, but they're paying less to see them. And with the advent of the all you can eat buffet, mm -hmm. it's not about the individual film, the viability, the market, you don't see the dollars back for that. You're getting minimal upfronts if they give you that Yeah, very little participation in whatever revenue it, it derives. And then the model becomes, as it becomes bigger and bigger with these tsunami waves of content, the, the streamers become like Walmart. You mm. don't go to Walmart for artisanal cheese, right? 
You go for the big brands. The, yeah, the smiley face so you can save money, right? Right. And so what's selling at Walmart? What's selling on Netflix and all of the other streamers? Big brands. Yeah. Big games, big brands, crime stories. Mm. There's very, very, there's little to no room for individual character-driven storytelling right. in short forms that we call movies, you know, like all in one. I mean, there's extraordinarily brilliant work being done, like Succession, et cetera. I'm not oh, saying, yeah. but but then all the A-listers migrate. You know, how are you going to compete with that? So here we are in a very, very difficult time. So you ask, well, what did I, how did I change yeah. my things about filmmaking? I didn't change my things about filmmaking. Filmmaking, filmmaking changed. Filmmaking changed, yeah. And so, um, you know, it's a real question of where do we go from here? So I teach at NYU and I love teaching there. I love the, the my students are brilliant. Um, but I, I dread to think about what their future is going to be. Mm. What is the route? What is the path for them forward? Um, they're all interested in making movies. Of course, you know, they're interested in episodics too, but, you know, I had a, a freshman class of 54 students and of course it's a self-selected group. So they're all cineasts and very sophisticated. Yeah. And I said, well, first of all, who here goes, has seen a movie in a movie theater in the last month, everybody raises their hand. Hmm. You know, they all go to the Metrograph and film from God bless. Yeah. And so who here wants to make a movie? see your career making movies versus episodes always oh, yeah. they always hand. so my hope is that that generation because they have an appetite for storytelling that we call movies is going to create a countercultural movement and a demand mm -hmm. for it that just when just like when off hollywood that became independent film rose up yeah. In the 80s, because the dominant superstructure, you know, the vast Hollywood entertainment industry complex <laughs> at that, you know, don't forget, this is the advent of the blockbuster came up in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Have blockbusters before then. Mm -hmm. And so when what's coming out of the entertainment industry, industrial entertainment complex is very, very, very uh, limited to chasing the holy grail of the teenage boy, mm. there rose up a counterculture. And that's when you see John Sayles and oh, that's yeah. when you, see, you know, um, I'm forgetting some of the other leaders like Joan Micklin Silver and, you yeah. know, and, and then that fed into and became, well, Scorsese means streets, of course. And, yeah. but that rose up, it rose up in the eighties and then into the nineties as an appetite because people's needs weren't being served right. by the mass culture. And so that's my hope that Whenever there's an oppressive dominant culture, that's a ripe time for counterculture. Mm -hmm. And we are becoming more and more repressive. Yeah. As a society. I'll say. Yeah. I guess that's what happened with, um, I mean, even Woodstock to a degree, but all that music in the late 60s too, like with Dylan and John Paez and all, like everybody, if there wasn't something to resist, those movements movements wouldn't have resonated and that's like still the music that i listen to but all right speaking of movies so let's talk about your new film because okay. i and okay. i i thank you for sending it to me by the way oh sure so well, i really enjoyed for... it oh i'm yeah. glad no it was great and i um i like the dialogue that he uses like the hip there's some hip-hop resonance there yes, which there i is. like <laughs> <laughs> um, some 80s resonance too. He talks about things being like tubular and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I, as someone that's like, yeah, as someone that's not even like, I, I think that 
sci-fi as a genre like this this feels like something a little bit deeper because it's you're del- you're delving into this relationship that this woman has with her mother yeah. um who's basically on the like she's on the verge of like she's definitely experiencing like s- symptoms of dementia and she's forgetting things and and then she also has this partner the husband and they're trying to figure out like how to keep this motel afloat and she wants to start this artist retreat so like these are all themes that you don't necessarily see in your typical sort of sci-fi like feature and then you have this alien interaction uh, which changes her whole life forever and she in some ways has been chasing that for the last 25 years right so how did you how did that story kind of we, yeah. we talked about development and new line but how's yeah. that how does that story kind of develop for you yeah well first of all you know it's funny is because i never thought of it as sci-fi mm-hmm. i thought of it as uh an ensemble character story and the given circumstance was an alien okay like that was just their reality yeah and you know, I appreciate that it is a sci-fi genre and, you know, can be marketed as such, but that's not how I directed it. Mm-hmm. I didn't go there because yeah. the sci-fi, it has a sci-fi element. In fact, we got um, a very nice award at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. The The festival director gives an award to one film and gave it to ours. Mm-hmm. And when we were given the award, they said, you know, sometimes there are films that have sci-fi elements as being like pure sci-fi. And that's what yeah. this is. Yeah. And um. And of course, it was very fun to work with special effects and to try oh, and yeah. how to, you know, I, I I was right away. It's like, okay, there's not going to be any spaceships. There's not going to be any bodies. We're not going to do some like cheesy version of something we can't do well. So I started to think about, well, the very tiny bit that I know about, you know, quantum physics and mm-hmm. particle matter. I thought, well, what if this alien is from such a different environment such a different reality that they don't that this being doesn't subscribe to the materiality that we have on earth Mm, so it wouldn't show up with the materiality of earth it would be particles and light right so let's let's create something that's all about particles and light particles and light and how energy manifests and then of course in the energetic form lands and has to take on the body of a human so oh yeah you know and and so the actor of course is a human who looks like a the, the the premise is that He'll take on the form of the first person he sees, and he lands in the fields of New Mexico. So he mm-hmm. looks like a Mexican field worker. Mm-hmm. Right? That's yeah. the manifestation. Yeah. And um, this was again, you know, so I was a very, uh, I'm a very lucky woman. Let me put it this way: I've, I've so many times just been in the right place at the right time. And um, there was a team of people who uh, had this fully funded, and they were looking for a director and approached me. And I read the script and I thought, you know, the writer's very talented, but the script was very, very different from what we shot. Mm. And the script that I read, the protagonist was a male, not a female. Oh, wow. Uh, They were an artist. There was no artist colony. Um, There was a lot that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And I read and I thought, well, this is, you know, charming and interesting and an opportunity to, you know, paint with a very different palette than I've done before but I don't see my way into the story. I don't know. And then I thought, huh, if the protagonist is female versus male, this makes sense because the story was, the story that I read was a little boy had an encounter with an alien uh, who gave, you know, him sort of a glowing orb and said, can you hold on to this for me? I'll be back and spent the next 25 years waiting for the return of the alien. And then he arrives. And I thought, well, wait a second. If it's a woman who is taking care of her dying mother, which is much more 
understandable and typical, yep. you know, the, the, the relationships that we as women have with our moms, mm-hmm. and it does fall to the daughter to take care. And she's suspended in a kind of a limbo waiting for the return of the magic man. Who's going to make everything all right. Yeah. That made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Then it was a story that I, I could understand what it was about. And so then I, I worked with the writer for several maybe four or five months. And um, uh, we had a very nice collaboration. I mean, he wrote every word, but we infused it with a lot of conversation, a lot of, you know, ideas I had. And, um, and then, uh, and then made the film and um, it was financed through, you know, private sources. They had, you know, money from the family. So we weren't required to cast it uh, with any actor who, had box office value, mm. which gave the opportunity to just work with a wonderful team of actors who yeah. just read the roles and they were great. Yeah. And now it's sort of rolling out on um, film festivals and looking for distribution. And as I just said, you know, distribution is so hard. Independent film is so difficult. So we'll see what happens. It's, it's, um, this is really more about the moment that we're in than the film itself. Mm. Distribution outcome is really about what's happening for distribution of small, quirky, independent films without stars, full stop. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. But I mean, there is definitely, I think, uh, I know I fit in this category, but like there's an audience that's hungry for stuff like that. Like that's kind of, again, like speaking of the counterculture that wants to kind of see that, wants to be exposed to, uh, you know, uh, themes and, and tonality that you weren't, that you don't necessarily see in the traditional sort of box office draw film and i think this definitely does that and i i I, did you shoot on uh did you shoot in in new mexico yeah we did wow so like yeah i mean it's really uh i think like you mentioned that it's the sci-fi-ness the alien is a character it's not it's not like the whole enchilada and i think that what's interesting one part that really caught my eye was that when he um when she basically asked him like if you have the power to heal then Hmm. how come you didn't you didn't heal your planet and uh he's like he refers to hubris and that's mm. like almost the sense of humility that you don't expect from someone that's coming from an extraterrestrial place I and mean, that's poetry man so that i i think um you know you say you've been lucky but i think you also have great taste um and i <laughs> i love uh seeing all your work and i think it's so impactful and so important and i i really appreciate you you coming on and, and getting the pleasure to talk to you so thank you so much well, thank you. I, I was such a it was such a delight and a surprise to be approached, and I I'm so grateful. Uh, thank you so much, and it's been really fun to talk to you. And I, I listened to many of your other interviews, and so you know everybody should listen to them too. They're great. There's nuggets of wonderful stuff in all of them. So that's very nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.